This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come again to our time in the Word, um, as we just prayed, we trust that you will reveal yourself to us, that you will grow us, that you will cause us and shape us to become better worshipers, and, and ultimately, Lord, that we would look more like Christ in, in our lives and to those people around us that, uh, that we would reveal you and your grace and mercy to them. Father, it is in his name that I pray. Amen. Amen. The year was 1986. Nuclear disarmament was the concern of the day. And it would be almost a year before President Reagan would say, tear down this wall. So peace protesters put together a strategy to bring awareness to the dangers of nuclear arms spearheaded by a group called Pro-Peace. It's people reaching out for peace. The plan was on March 1st, 1986, following a free rock concert. 100,000 supporters would send off 5,000 volunteers from the L.A. Coliseum on what would be called the Great Peace March. For eight months, this group would march from L.A. to Washington, D.C., where at sunrise on November 14th, they would enter the Capitol. Having compiled a petition during the march, the group would call for, and I quote, massive civil disobedience until the warmongers of government relented and disarmament was initiated, close quotes. That was the vision. But as Paul Harvey would say, now for the rest of the story. Instead of embarking from a rock concert at the Coliseum, a few thousand well-wishers attended an anticlimactic send-off of about a thousand marchers from the steps of the county courthouse. Two weeks in, having only walked about seven miles a day, the group Pro-Peace was forced to declare bankruptcy in Barstow, California, and more than a half of the marchers went home. The remaining 500 or so being made up completely of the super wealthy or the homeless, basically two ends of the economic spectrum that didn't have to have a job, uh, became highly polarized. So they created a government in their group to try to show the world they had the answers, except their government couldn't agree on anything. They even stalemated on things like whether or not one should be required to knock on the porta potty before entering. Until finally, after staggering into Washington, with their unity being the only thing more disheveled than their clothes, each faction held a ceremony at different venues where they focused primarily on slandering the other factions instead of disarmament. Ironically, that same year, the U.S. test fired its largest nuke to date. You want to guess what the name of that nuke was? It was called the Peacemaker. 
Well, good morning. We're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 18 if you want to start heading there in your Bibles. 2 Kings chapter 18. And the reason I shared that story with you about the Great Peace March is because I wonder if any of you ever feel like our culture is kind of like that. On a collision course with collapse. Incapable of doing anything right. If you do, I want to show you this morning that we're not alone in those fears and frustrations we feel. In fact, I'd like to take you back even further than the mid-80s. This morning, I'd like to take you back about 2,700 years to show you that, that, that what we feel were the same issues that they did even then. And I want to do this because whether it was 2,700 years ago or 40 years ago or yesterday, I want you to see that these issues, the conflict and the frustration stemming from our inability to fix any of it is begging each and every one of us to answer the most important question of our lives. But I'm not going to tell you what that question is. Instead, I want to reveal it through, to you through the passage. And I want to do that first by showing you that we actually have more in common with the people in 2 Kings 18 than you might think. And then second, if, if we do have something in common with these people, then I'd like to see if that means anything to us. And if it does mean something to us, then what is this question the story is begging us to ask? And then finally, I'll give you what I think is the answer to that question. So what we have in common, what it means, what is the question, and what is the answer? Now, Before we jump into 2 Kings, let me help you understand where we are. The story picks up about 700 B.C., with the inauguration of a new king named Hezekiah. Which means you're going to hear a lot of weird names and people and places. So let me simplify this for you and make it easy to understand. Basically, there are three countries being talked about here. Two small countries called Judah and Israel, and one large country called Assyria. Judah and Israel used to be one nation, but they split into two. And Assyria is the, the very violent world force at the time. So Judah and Israel, which used to be one, and Assyria, which is the dominant world power of the time. So look at the beginning, 2 Kings chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. In the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. In the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hoshea, son of Elah, 
king of Israel, Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. And at the end of three years, he took it. In the sixth year of Hezekiah, which was the ninth year of Hosea, king of Israel, Samaria was taken. The king of Assyria carried the Israelites away to Assyria and put them in Halah and on the Habar and the river of Gozan and in the cities of the Medes, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant, even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. They neither listened nor obeyed. In the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. The king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, three hundred talents of silver and thirty talents of gold. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house, at that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorposts that Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. Now, what you need to know about Hezekiah is that he was like a desperate breath to a drowning nation. Judah had been sinking in corruption and idolatry for centuries. And in walks Hezekiah, who at only 25 years old, genuinely desires to do the right thing. He genuinely desires to right wrongs and set God's people straight on the path of worship instead of idolatry. But what happened next is where we can begin to see ourselves kind of like steam dissipating from a mirror. We can begin to see ourselves appearing in this story. Because verses 9 through 12 describe how Judah watched her sister country, Israel, get violently wiped off the map. And by violently, I mean archaeologists have found Assyrian tablets that their military common practices when taking over a country would, were things like impaling young men and women around the city that they conquered. Not the warriors, the young ones. They would do things like hang the heads of families around the necks of survivors like a macabre necklace before they marched them back to Assyria. The warriors would pile up heads in front of their tents like pyramids to show off. That's what verses 9 through 12 says Judah just witnessed happen to their neighbor. And that was just the latest in a long line of violence that they had been a part of and had witnessed and had, had endured. Pain and heartache for Judah was like a growing burn scar from an uncontained fire. But I have to ask, doesn't that sound at least a little bit familiar? Doesn't this ever-increasing chaos and brutality sound a little familiar? I mean, I know we're not quite to the level that Judah is experiencing here, but we're headed in that direction, certainly. I mean, we see other nations collapsing and even other American cities literally burning with violence and hate. And, and no matter how much money or time we throw at all these issues, it, 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 it can't be solved. It just gets worse. It doesn't seem to be get, getting better from where I'm standing, at least. 
it seems like every time something is recognized and a problem comes up, it, it not only is just forgotten, but it seems like we go in the opposite direction. Like years ago, the devastation of, of drugs and what they were doing to our, our communities was brought to the light and campaigns were forged to solve the problem. Now we're legalizing drugs and supporting those whose lives have been wrecked by them. Then the, the terrible impact of gangs and fatherless homes was recognized and task forces and groups were, were funded and mobilized to try to combat this problem. But now our leaders are promoting fatherless homes and they're, they're providing legal cover for gangs to literally burn cities to the ground. And, and even today, with the rise of the racial and LGBTQ issues, it seems like hate and violence has, has jumped the, the fire line and started a blaze on a totally different hill. I don't know about you, but I've asked myself often recently, I don't know how much more of this our country can take. Well, back in our story, at least Judah had, had King Hezekiah, right? Surely he would be able to deflect this, this latest crisis and, and bring peace to all this chaos that was burning around them. The writer of 2 King, King seems intent on emphasizing that the great King Hezekiah folded like a wet noodle. Our story begins by talking about how great he was and how all the wonderful things that he did until Assyria rolled up in verses 13 through 16 and demanded he jump. And his answer was, how high? There, there's even an Assyrian obelisk that depicts this story from the Assyrian point of view. And it shows the Assyrian king sitting on Solomon's throne. Meaning Hezekiah didn't just give the Assyrian king some gold and silver. He literally gave them Solomon's throne. It's, it's as if Hezekiah tore the kitchen sink, as it were, out of the temple and gave it to Hezekiah or gave it to, to, the, to the Assyrian king. Judah's leader, the one that they had put their trust in for salvation, like dozens or so before him, had failed. How about you? Have you found yourself hoping in a political figure lately, only to be let down again? Like in the year 2000, following the presidential election, about half the country said, this guy is finally going to put things back together. Until about nine months later, he proved he was not only incapable of protecting us from terrorists, but he was capable of starting unjustified wars. Then eight years later, our country elected its first black president, and about half the country said, this man is going to do something, he's going to get something done. Until black-on-black -black crime skyrocketed and, and, and abuse of authority went crazy. Then eight years later, finally a man was elected president, and the other half of the nation was like, this one's going to get something done. He's going to do something to change our country. Until he proved he was as incapable of protecting us from a virus that wrecked our lives as he was capable of, of, of mass division. I don't think I need to say anything about our current president. I don't mean anything derogatory about the man. I simply mean that he is quickly inscribing himself on a long list of leaders from both sides of the political aisle who have left us wanting something more. 
someone more. Someone capable, someone willing of really solving some problems and keeping them solved. Someone with a sliver of moral character. And on and on and on it has gone from 2,700 years ago to 40 years ago to yesterday. Like a prison yard without guards, our culture seems not only incapable of finding peace, but hell-bent on destroying it. That's the first thing I want you to see out of this text. I want you to see that we have more in common with people who lived 2,700 years ago than you might think. So, do you know what the question is yet that this story is begging us to ask? Well, if not, then second, does that mean anything to us? Does it mean anything to us that that we have so much violence and chaos and, and the inability to fix it, that we have that in common with people that lived so long ago? Well... Interestingly, the Bible says about 700 years later, after our story, some guys asked Jesus that same question. You see, some some terrible things had happened recently. A local governor had slaughtered some Jews. and, And just to be mean, just to rub it in, he had put their blood on the altars where they sacrificed. Uh, A poorly built tower had tipped over and, and killed 18 people. So some guys asked Jesus, get this, they said, what does all this conflict and chaos mean? What do you think Jesus said? How do you think he answered? Did he he say it meant that they needed to take action? Did he say that they, they needed to fight for stricter building codes or find better leaders? No. He said, Jesus said, do you think these people were worse sinners than you? Like, do you think this happened to them because some kind of cosmic karma, they deserved it? Jesus said no. Listen to the rest of Jesus' answer, because what Jesus said this chaos meant to them is the same thing that it means to us. All the violence and all the conflict and our inability to fix it in this world, what Jesus said it meant to them is the same thing it means to us. And I paraphrase, of course. But what Jesus said is all this never-ending hatred and chaos and violence and man's inability to fix it. He said it's crying out. It's crying out that this world is broken. That this world is broken. And then he continued to say if this world is broken, then that also means the same thing about us as it did them. He said it means that you and I are broken as well. It means that you and I are not only living in a broken world, but we're part of the problem. Now, I know at least some of you are probably thinking something like, well, I'm not a racist, I'm not violent, I haven't killed anybody, or I'm not like all those other people you're talking about. And I would say, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to falsely accuse or wrongly accuse anyone. But I would ask you one thing. What if... I was. How how would you feel if right here on this screen I was able to display a montage of your worst thoughts and actions in front of everyone? Would you still be willing to say that you're not broken? Or would you be just as as ashamed as I would if everyone here saw those things that I would probably punch my own mother to keep secret? We got them. 
Every single one of us. My mother's sitting right there being serious. So let's not do that montage, Stan. Okay. You see, what the Bible says about all this chaos in our world and our inability to truly fix any of it is that it's not something out there that needs fixing. Now, the Bible says that the brokenness of this world is like a bank robbery. It's always an inside job. There has never been something, there, there has always been something broken in each and every one of us, and we are powerless to fix it ourselves, much less others. We constantly talk about how bad others need to be fixed, and we never talk about how bad we need to be fixed. We constantly talk about all the sin and strife and chaos and conflict in the world, and we never talk about what's going on in our own heads. I ask you again, do you know what question the story is begging us to ask? If not, let's get back to our story and see if that helps. Look at verse 17. King Hezekiah had given the king of Assyria all the gold and silver. And it says in verse 17, And the king of Assyria sent the Tartan, the Rabsaris, and the Rabshakeh, with a great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And they went up and came to Jerusalem. When they arrived, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is on the highway to the washer's field. And when they called for the king, there came out to them Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household of Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. Now let me explain to you this scene. This Harold, let's call him, the Rabshakeh. Kind of sounds like a 70s funk band. The Rabshakeh was like the herald for, king, for the king of Assyria. And he came to talk to the king of, of Judah and tell him, basically, you have a chance to surrender. Remember what happened to your sister? Here's your chance. But here's his thing. He's standing on the pool, on the, on the spring, on the well that sent water to Judah. He knew where it was, meaning he's standing on their very source of life saying, what are you going to do? Like, I know where your water supply is outside the walls. You have a chance to surrender. And in verse 19, the Reb Shaka, this, this herald continues, he said to them, as he's standing on their source of life, as he's standing on their water, he says, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you, do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting now in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. Meaning, the Rabshakeh knew 
that Judah didn't even have 2,000 soldiers. Verse 24, How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, Go up against this land and destroy it. So, so the Rabshakeh, he's taunting the Judeans because he knows they're scared. He knows they don't have any soldiers. And he's right. That's the hard part. How do I know he's right? Look at verse 26. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, this is like the Judean herald, he said to the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. Meaning you're freaking the people out, dude. Can you talk in this other language so they don't understand what you're saying? Verse 27. But the Rabshakeh said to them, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to, to, to eat their own dung and to drink their own urine? And the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah. He's doubling down now. Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us, and this city will not be given into the, king, into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me, and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine, and each one of you his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey that you may live and not die. And do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his hand, his land out of the hand of the Assyrians? Meaning no other kingdom has been able to defeat us. Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvim, Hena and Iva? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of this land have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? The people were silent, for they were told not to answer him. And in verse 37, Eliakim goes and tells Hezekiah. So this terrifying army that had just wiped out their sister country, completely swept them off the map, deported everybody, is now standing at Judah's gate, standing on top of their source of water, giving them a chance to surrender before they do the same to them. And not only was Judah's much larger sister country Israel unable to defend themselves, but Judah's king has just proven himself impotent in the face of this enemy. The Rabshakeh, that herald, he knew it. So he taunted them saying, you can't trust in Hezekiah or Egypt, or even your God, to deliver you, you need to trust in us and we'll deliver you. You want to know what the real irony of this story is? It would be less than five years before Assyria was conquered by the Babylonians. 
So have you figured it out yet? Have you figured out what question the story is begging us to ask? Well, if we have so much in common with people 2,700 years ago, and that means that we are broken people living in a broken world, then the question that this story is begging us to answer this morning is the same question the Rabshakeh asked Judah. When our failed leaders are all claiming that we should trust them, when we see the destruction of society and civilization all around us, and when it seems like this world is actually taunting us with tragedy, this story is still crying out for us to answer the same question it asked its first readers to answer 2,700 years ago. And that question is, who will you trust? Who will you trust to deliver you from your broken self and this broken world? Who will you trust to deliver you from, the, from your broken self in this broken world? Because there's only one right answer to that question. And in a day where it seems like there is nothing but bad news, let me give you some good news. You see, there was a time when all this violence and hatred and conflict, it got much, much worse. Worse than it's ever been, in fact. It was when broken, wicked men nailed Jesus Christ to the cross. It was a time when it seemed like Jesus was going to be just another failed leader, incapable of doing what he said. Hanging on a cross, naked and beaten beyond recognition, the breath of the one who said he came to save all mankind rattled out of his weakened body as he suffocated on his own blood. And while he hung there dying, looking like he was just another failed leader, some of those in authority said basically the same thing to him that the Rabshakeh said to Judah. They said, if you're so special, why don't you save yourself? But just like SM said last Sunday night, he didn't say a mumbling word. Because coming down off that cross, it wasn't good enough for Jesus. It was too easy not to die. It was too simple to not suffer. It was ineffective to escape death. You see, Jesus wanted to be laid in the dirt so that he could lay waste to death. And he did. He died, was buried, and then rose again three days later. And this morning you may say, that's crazy. To which I say, you're absolutely right. But that doesn't make it untrue. You see, it should sound crazy that he crawled out of the grave. It should sound doubtful that he defeated death. It should sound beyond belief that he broke the bonds of sin and shame. Because that's how amazing it is. That's how amazing it is. And 500 people, both Christian and non-Christian, testified to seeing him alive. But the more incredible thing was that Jesus said the reason he died was to deliver us from the brokenness which we're incapable of delivering ourselves. And he rose from the grave to prove he could. 
He died and rose from the grave with sin and death following him in chains like conquered subjects to prove, to prove that we can trust him. When our, when our failed leaders claim that we should put our trust in them, Jesus proved that, that he can lead us through the valley of the shadow of death and make us a little table in front of them. When this world and even our own sins seem to be standing at the gates of our hearts, taunting and ridiculing and tempting us to trust in something, something or someone else, Jesus proved we can trust him because he's already won the victory over everything and everyone who could ever even think about defeating us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, who do you trust? Who do you trust to deliver you from your broken self and this broken world? Because Jesus said, if your answer to that question is him, if you trust him to deliver you from your broken self and from this broken world, if your answer to that question is that you trust him, then let me tell you what that means. That means that you are indwelt by a hope. A hope that all the violence and all the chaos and all the ridicule of this world cannot overcome. In fact, you are indwelt by a hope that not even your own sin can overcome. The Bible calls it a peace that surpasses understanding. In fact, our brother Paul wrote about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and I want you to listen to what he says this broken world can and can't do to us. He said, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Which means, brothers and sisters, in the face of the same brokenness and violence and chaos that Israel faced 2,700 years ago, Paul continues, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart because we know who we trust. He says, for this light and momentary affliction. And for some of you, that sounds crazy. That what you're dealing with is light and momentary. Paul says, compared to what's coming, this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now I'll let you read 2 Kings and see what Hezekiah did and didn't see. But what is seen, what is seen for us is temporary solutions and agreements and victories of men. What is seen is safety in wealth and walls and whereabouts. But what is unseen, what is unseen for us is Jesus Christ sitting victorious over your sin and mine. And that is what Paul says we look to. What is unseen is Jesus Christ patiently waiting for all the full number of the saints to come to him before he writes every wrong. 
and restores every repentant reprobate. That's you and I. That's what's unseen. So how about at Cedar Springs Church? Who do you trust? Who do you trust to deliver you from yourself and this broken world? If you're still unsure, then behold him, stronger than the seas, God from everlasting and just in his decrees. Behold him, worthy of our trust, faithful to his promise, ever here with us. He reigns. When oceans roar, he reigns. Above the storm, enthroned on high, the Lord Almighty reigns. He reigns amidst the flood. He reigns with grace and love. Enthroned on high, the Lord Almighty reigns. Stand with me, please, and let's make that our...